Greetings everyone, this is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. Chointcast 12 takes direct aim at generational differences in the workplace as we meet Kelly Riggs, who has co-written with his son Robbie, Counter Mentor Leadership, a pathfinding generational work. Kelly is the founder of Business Locker Room, host of the Counter Mentors Show, and a dynamic thought leader in the fields of sales and leadership. He's also a business performance coach who walks the talk as a business owner, as a national award-winning sales representative, and sales manager. Kelly hails from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is passionate about supporting children, believing that the good we do for the young yields the greatest payoffs. Welcome, Kelly Riggs. I got to tell you, I've been really excited about learning more about where, where this book came from, your book, Counter Mentor Leadership. In my review, I called it in the first sentence, Book of the Year. Welcome to the Chointcast. Oh, it's great to be here. And I have to tell you, the confession is that when I read that, I, I literally fell out of my chair. <laughs> I was like, holy cow. I mean, I, either this this gentleman doesn't read a lot of books or uh, maybe, maybe we've stumbled on something that's uh, kind of special. Well, maybe you have, because later this year I will be posting my 100th book review. So I, I do read a couple books. Wow. And one of the, and that's just, that's leadership books. But one of my first questions, and I, I want the audience to know, Counter Mentor Leadership is a very funny book. And I think one of the reasons why it's funny is because when we're reading it, we're all laughing at ourselves because we're doing the same things the co-authors of the book are doing as well. So so my question to you, Kelly, is how frequently were you and Robbie laughing when you were writing this book? Well, it's it's an insightful question. The answer is quite a bit. You know, my my son and I, uh, the, the whole idea behind the book was we, we see the same problem in the workplace. He, uh, he has his own consulting shop with a partner and they've become very successful. And yet he's only 31 years old. Uh, me, I'm a 57 year old, you know, died in the wool boomer. And we see exactly the same problems and we see the same solutions, but we're on opposite sides of the street of this train wreck, you know? So we, we, we see it differently, but the same. And we began to have these conversations on a regular basis. And um, we, we've, we've just had a very close relationship all, all of his life. Uh, it, you know, he was a sports guy and I was his coach and he interned with me in college. And, you know, he's, he's just an incredible young man and uh, just brilliant in his own right. And, and so over, over the course of some holidays, we began to have very serious conversations about what we saw and how we saw the answers going. And we, we just kind of get into this natural sort of snarky, sarcastic back and forth that has become who we are, not only in the book, but in our video podcast as well. And it's, uh, you, you know, we, we're, as he said, we don't want to write another hashtag boring leadership book because there's there's plenty of leadership books out there. And you of all people would know that. Uh, but but we wanted to write something that was eminently fun and readable, but yet jam packed with really great content. And so many times during the course of writing, we, we divvied up chapters and we would write and we would read each other's stuff. And that's where we would come in with the comments that you see in the book. And many times we would add these comments and then inevitably the phone call would ensue where we would be laughing at each other about how you know funny that insight was. Or uh, it, it was it was really a, a really fun experience for both of us. 
it's it's not a surprise, and I, I'm glad to hear that because if someone looked at my annotated copy, they might even see spots where you know the pen went dragging across simply because I started chortling or something. So, <laughs> so, so, so speaking speaking of you, Kelly, how do people find you? How do people find you on the web, uh, social media, stuff like that? Well, you know, Robbie and I, my son and I, we have we have different businesses. My my business, my core business that I've been doing now for over a dozen years, is called the Business Locker Room. And it's because I think that business is like sports. It's a competition, and I grew up with a sports background. But, you know, I found that uh, nobody gets to cash checks for second place. In, in the world of sales, you get paid to win. You don't get paid to come in second or third or whatever. So eventually I branded the business, the business locker room, and you can find that at bizlockerroom.com. The, the thing that my son and I do together, Counter Mentors, you can find it online as well, countermentors.com. And our podcast and, you know, links to the book and all those kinds of things are there. And, of course, we have uh, the social media presence, and you can find all of that as well. Very simply on Twitter, at Kelly Riggs, at Robbie Riggs, and you can follow both of us there. Super. One other thing, Choinkit is a profit with purpose entity, and I always want to know, what kind of causes or passions drive you, Kelly? Well, that's, you know, that's a really interesting question because I don't know that I'm driven by causes per se. Uh, I'm, I'm driven more by individual people in need. And you know, er, you know, on an everyday basis, if your eyes are open, you encounter people who are who need help at a variety of levels. It can be the uh, the the young professional salesperson who's really struggling to get started and can't find their way. I l love to coach and help and train people, and it can extend all the way to people who are struggling to you know pay their bills or take care of their children. I have a particular soft spot, as does my son, for children, and and I think so much of what people wind up as adults is driven by what happens to them in their childhood. And, and I'm, and I, I pay particular attention to kids. I want to stop and encourage them. I spent many, many years as a coach and many times, even their parents would, would write the, the nicest notes and say, you will never know the kind of impact that you had on my son or my grandson, uh, because of the way you treated them as a coach. So I, I think if, if there is a cause that I have, uh, it, it is to really pay attention to kids in their formative years to give them a sense of encouragement and courage uh, that they can be and do what they want to be and do. Couldn't have set that up any better. Usually there's a cause. We just need to think about it for a little bit and it comes out with, with fury in your case. So let's turn to your book. The book is counter mentor leadership. Let's set the table. You define two key characters, if you will, or archetypes in the book, the boss and the kids. Then and you were in Robbie's respective roles in the book. So break down boss and kids for us. Well, it's it's interesting because in the you know in our discussions it was always boomers and millennials, boomers and millennials, and you know boomers and millennials although they sort of serve as this this uh, this grand caricature of two generations, it really leaves out Gen X in the middle. It really doesn't talk about uh, the newest generation that's just coming online now that uh, Tom Kalopoulos calls Gen Z, you know, shocker, X, Y, and then Z. I don't know what's next, like double A's or something. And we, and we, we found that to be wholly unsatisfying just simply to call people boomers and, and uh, millennials. So one day we were, we were talking about the boss and it's always about the boss, the boss, the boss. And, and I, and I forget how we got there, but we quickly got there that the boss makes this perfect acronym. The boomer 
old school supervisor because that's that's who we're talking about this old school approach of do it do what i say not what i do you know when i when i say jump you ask how high i you know i, I don't want to hear your opinion i'm the boss sit down shut up and do what i tell you that kind of thing and that's kind of what we were railing against is this kind of old school idea of what leadership is like that, that so permeates corporate america <clears throat> and and so we decided to go with that and we said well what's the other side and i said in, in, Robbie was like, you're always talking about the kids these days, these kids. And and so we noodled around with that and we immediately came up with this uh, know-it-all, the K-I-D-S, know-it-all digital self-promoter, which, which is so typical of kids. You know, they want to take uh, pictures of their food and they want to, you know, tell you everything they do and everything about themselves and all that. So we, we kind of created these two archetypes that you mentioned, the boss and the kids, and it sort of, uh, in a general way, allows us to talk about two general schools of thought and ways of looking at life without actually get into, getting into generational ideals. Right out of the chute, you grabbed me with that. And I, I knew, I knew these, these authors, these co-authors, you and your son, were, were on to it. It was just an intuitive appeal. Now, a little more distinction. I noticed that when you were listing the different generations, we don't have to go through them all, but you showed the baby boomers and the Gen Xers intersecting during the birth years 19 to 61 to 1964. I found that very interesting, maybe because I'm in that little window. What's that all? What's that all about? Well, you know, it's interesting because all the generational labels are constructs, right? I mean, they're man-made constructs. Somebody's, you know, the whole idea behind the boomer generation was that there was this big boom of births following World War II, and it was the largest birth explosion in, in the history of our country by far. And, and that's where the term came from, this baby boom. People came back from the war, and uh, they were just glad to be alive and you know reunited with their loved ones, and, and it, re it resulted in this huge boom. Well, as social uh, commentators and social scientists do, uh, you know, they create this demographic and, and this thing began to sort of tail off in the early 60s and, and recognizing that these are just constructs. I mean, they're very imperfect at best. I'll give you another really good example is we call millennials those who have been born, you know, roughly from 83 to 98. Well, what we now know is that there's early millennials and late millennials. The early millennials, like my son, Robbie, was not was not born with digital technology. He kind of came into it. Uh, you know, the smartphone is uh, less than 20 years old, and, and yet now kids, uh, late millennials and, and Gen Z people, they actually, I, I'm pretty sure they come out of the womb tweeting about the experience, you know. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're so connected to digital technology and smartphones, and it's why you can see entire families sitting at the dinner table, you know, so at, at their favorite restaurant, and they're all glued to their phones. They're not even talking to each other, which is a whole other social commentary, but there, there is this sort of this gray period between each of the generations where you, you find commonalities of, of X with more with boomers or X more with millennials. And when, when, when Gen X became the thing, it was all about Gen X at the time. You know, millennials didn't become the topic of conversation clearly until much later. And Gen X was going to change the world and they were different. And they weren't going to be like boomers and all this. But, you know, where's that line of demarcation? It was kind of gray. So uh, it really depends on how you were raised and what part of the country you were raised in. If you're raised on the coast, you're probably much more likely to be more Gen X in the early 60s. But if you're raised in more, you know, flyover America, you know, middle America, the Bible Belt, whatever you want to say it. 
you're probably much more boomer related in, in those, uh, those three or four years that exist there. I like the flexibility it offers because I've, I've found when I played with those constructs and that's a, that's a good description of it, Kelly, I find that there's conditioning both from the baby boomer generation and some also with, with Gen X. So it certainly worked for me and appealed to me. I noticed in, in your book and I, you were influenced by Frederick Winslow Taylor, which immediately made me think of General Stanley McChrystal and how powerful Taylor was in influencing his book, Team of Teams. Tell us, tell us what you found out studying Taylor and why that's important to us today. Well, I, f- I first learned about and then conveniently forgot about Frederick Winslow Taylor in college. You know, when you take a management class, they're going to tell you about uh, theories of management, where they came from. And Frederick Winslow Taylor is always front and center. He's uh, commonly called the father of modern managers or modern management. In 1911, he wrote a book called The Principles of Scientific Management. And that's really what he brought to the table was this whole idea that you can approach the workplace scientifically. Now, keeping in mind that this was at the, you know, the the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. So he was studying uh, workers and productivity inside of steel mills and places like that, where you you had uh, the the these typical sort of Industrial Revolution workplaces. You know, it was the assembly lines and all those kinds of things. And and he found that there was a real variability in terms of worker productivity. And he thought that you could impact that by approaching it in a much more scientific way. So he became one of the very first management consultants, if you will. He went out and studied workflow processes and became became the precursor of things that we look at now, lean management and all those kinds of things. But the reason we, we became very interested in Frederick Winslow Taylor is because his shadow looms very large over managers even today, uh, particularly in the boomer realm, because the the book that he wrote was about efficiency. It was about people getting better on the workplace, but it was very manager driven. He he goes so far to say in the book that, you know, if you're in, it literally uses this language, if you're stupid enough to be somebody who works as, as a steel worker, then you clearly don't have the intellect to, to make decisions about processes and and in improvements and workflow and all those kinds of things. And literally what he was saying is there's two classes of people. There's the educated person like myself. He was supposed to go to Harvard and become a lawyer, did not, instead became an engineer and wound up being recognized uh, you know, by the American Society of Mechanical Engineers as one of the great contributors of all time to that discipline. But you know, you're not smart enough to be that guy. So you need somebody to do it for you. That person is called a manager. And so all of the focus from a workplace standpoint was managers will tell employees what to do. And I'm sure to people listening, that sounds very, very familiar. And then you get into the 40s and you you begin to get into the military realm. So many of our uh, people who became corporate icons, you know, were in the military, especially during World War II, and they learned the whole idea of do what I say, do it when I tell you to do it, you don't question orders, those kinds of things. And in the military, there was a very specific thing that they were trying to accomplish there. You're trying to create, you know, a functioning team that does not question uh, the platoon leader or the company commander, because if you did, people died. I mean, there, there, you had to be able to predict the way people would respond especially under stress. So they had to to break you down to your smallest component, rebuild you as a team that listened to a leader. 
Nobody knows better than the American military complex how to create great leaders. Nobody. Nobody knows how to create teams and leaders better than they do. And of course, McChrystal would have been influenced by what he had learned through Frederick Winslow Taylor as well. But the thing is, is that military leadership often, Jim, I think, as you probably well know, carries a bad name in some people's minds because of that idea. You do what I say because I said so. You don't question me. But they they take those things out of con- context and they also see a lot of bad leaders inside the military. So they question the whole idea that they create good leaders. It's not the process that's broken. It's because leaders are people and not all people are, are equally motivated to be empathetic leaders, to care about their people, to care about, you know, the people they take into battle. One of the things we learn from the military in just surveying combat troops is the things that they value in leadership is the exact same things that people in the workplace value in leadership. You know, they think if the, if that platoon commander doesn't care about me and I don't trust him, I am not going into battle with him, period. And, and so th- there, there's a lot of disconnect there. But we what we did was look at the genesis of modern leadership and modern leadership practices. And we traced it back to Frederick Winslow Taylor and guys like McChrystal, our good friend David Burkus, who wrote a book called Under New Management. He, he talked about it as well. Much of what people perceive as, quote unquote, micromanagement can actually be traced directly back to unintended consequences of the principles of scientific management. I mean, he never intended to create a bunch of micromanagement in, in today's knowledge-based economy, but he had no sense of that in those days. I mean, his, his ideals were pure in the sense that uh, you, you, you can't have uneducated people trying to teach um, people how to be more effective in the workplace. It's just not going to work. So he had a very singular point of view. Unfortunately, that singular point of view persisted into even the modern day workplace. It sure does. And over time, I find myself increasingly not just thinking back to Taylor, but even even the Industrial Revolution. It's it's humbling when we realize, you said cast a shadow, how many legacy constructs exist that, that influence maybe 80% of our behaviors each day. And it's, it's well worth understanding that. Not surprisingly, when we look at things such as Gallup and other surveys regarding employee engagement, they're often very poor. You, you, you put in the book uh, Matthew Lieberman's question, should leaders focus on results or on people? And there's some pretty startling findings. Can you share them with us? Absolutely. This is one of the most informative pieces that I read. This this, uh, was published, Lieberman's work was published in Harvard Business Review. And I found it fascinating. I I first came into contact with it through a good friend of mine named John Spence. And and he had written a piece about it. And I was intrigued. And I went and read the entire article and, and looked at it in depth. And then when we started writing the book, it was one of the sort of centerpieces of what we looked at. Because if you ask people about managers and how effective they are. If you go back to 2005, the conference board reported that only about one in three employees consider their managers to be good leaders, which was shocking. Uh, but but it dovetails almost identically with Gallup's work on engagement. About two thirds of employees are not engaged or actively disengaged. And so that the, those things to me had to have some sort of common ground. And Lieberman's work sort of found that because what he asked was, is if if someone considers you to be a good leader, is it because you focus on results 
or is it because you focus on people? Now, my immediate response was, ah, it's got to be about people, right? People who are focused on results can be micromanagers and they can be driven to, you know, run people off because all they care about is results and they don't care about people. Well, Libra, in studying 60,000 leaders and the response or, or employees commentary about leaders, rather, that what they learned was is that if you were someone who focused on results as a leader, your employees would consider you, you know, they, their commentary about you as a good leader was roughly one in seven. About 14% of leaders who focused on results were considered to be good leaders. And I went, aha, I knew it. I know because now they're going to talk about people who are, you know, leaders who are focused on people and the number is going to be so much higher. And so many times when we're doing training and we're doing presentations to large groups and associations and speaking engagements, we'll ask people, what percentage of leaders were considered to be good leaders if they focused on people. Oh, and the numbers go way up. Surprisingly, the number goes down. It goes down to 12%. And I, and I mean, I, I'm just absolutely intrigued by this. I'm like, you, you've got to be kidding. I mean, you're blowing up my whole thought process here. But he goes further and he asks, what percentage of people are considered to be good leaders if they have both? If they're both focused on results and they're focused on people, and that number, Jim, jumps to 72%. Three out of four leaders are considered to be really good leaders when they focus not just on results, not just on people, but both, which now makes incredibly good sense to me. And, and, and I understand why, because great employees want to do great things. They want to be a part of something special. They want to create results. But if they think the boss doesn't care about them and doesn't have their best interests in mind, their perception of them as leaders goes down dramatically. But just because you're really good with people and people like you and all that, if you're not results focused as well, they may like you, but they're not going to see you as a good leader. And there's a, there's really a difference. Now, the corollary to this is what made me fall out of my chair in a very big way. They went on to study to find out how many of these kinds of leaders are there. And they did this massive study to find out if you combine goal or results focus with with uh, focus on people, how many people would we find leaders that are actually those kinds of leaders? And the number was one percent. And that uh, that that was really the coup de gras. I mean, what, what it says is leadership is very, very hard and there are very, very few people who get it right. And I think that's because the whole process of how we develop leaders and how we put people into positions of leadership is systemically flawed. It, it is it is really a train wreck. But uh, that that is such revealing uh, research, and we had to include it in the book. It's an astonishing finding, and it and it really sets up our, our natural next question, Kelly. Because as you as you said, if if we've had low engagement scores, whether it's Gallup or whoever's doing the results, they've been flat for twenty or thirty years or so. Yes. So can you comment on the tendency then? For organizations to promote people, say, from an effective indi individual contributor or smart person to a leadership role. Yeah, it's uh, – in fact, I, I would go further than tendency. I think it's the rule. I think it's the norm. You know, I, I came out of the sales world as a young sales guy. I was very successful, national salesperson of the year for two years in a row. And my company did what every company does. When they had an opening for a manager, who best – to take over this role than our top guy. So they came and said, hey, would, would, would you like to be a sales manager? 
And of course, uh, you know, my ego and my career path and, you know, all the things that go into that. Absolutely. I, you know, I want to be the boss. I, I want to impact results at a level beyond just having good ideas on occasion that people listen to. I want to be able to impact policy. And, you know, I, I want to tell people how to do and what to do and all those kinds of things. But m my company, like so many companies, did not have any kind of training whatsoever. In fact, I like to joke in presentations that we do, I say, we, you know, we had this extensive training process for new managers and it went like this, good luck. You know, <laughs> that, was, that was about the extent of it was, hey, you know, get out there and be a manager. Well, I knew nothing about the components of, of being successful as a leader. I didn't know how to interview, hire, train, onboard. I didn't know how to coach and develop. I didn't even know how to structure the whole idea of leadership. And so what happens in the workplace, I believe as a rule, is when we're looking for a leader, we promote based on knowledge, skill, or performance. We look at the smartest person in the room and say, you know, everybody comes to you when they need something. So we think you'd make a great leader. Does that mean you're moving in the right path to be a leader? Sure. Does it mean you'll be one? No. Does it mean you'll be effective at all? As, as we found, 1%, 1 in, one in 100. Um, you know, you're, you're the person who knows more about the machinery, the equipment, your skill is amazing, or your performance has been off the chart and we want to put you in a position of performance. Here's the reality. What made you a great employee is a completely different skill set than the one that will make you a great leader. And yet, as companies, we look at that great performer and we say, naturally, you should be a great leader. And it's simply not true. So we set people up to fail and we don't know that we're doing that. And it's, it's unfortunate because I think a lot of people go into leadership positions, Jim, with very high ideals things they're going to do. They're not going to do it the way their boss did it. And, you know, their level of engagement, the moment they become a leader, their level of engagement is off the chart. And within what we find is within four to six months, their level of engagement has declined dramatically. And you begin to hear them say the kinds of things that leaders have always said, man, you just can't find good people. You can't find people who are committed. You can't, you can't get people to do what you want them to do. And it's because they simply don't have any idea what leadership looks like. And it's not surprising then, Kelly, that you mentioned people join companies but leave managers. It's a natural byproduct of what you just said. Yeah, there's there's no question about it. And, you know, that's not an original thought. You, you go back to a, a book that came from Gallup written by Marcus Buckingham called First Break All the Rules. Uh, it was all the research that they did into great managers that led them to that conclusion is that people join companies. They love the thought of a great company. But when they quit – According to the research that Gallup did and has been validated over and over again, about 70% of the time when people quit a, a, a company, they're not quitting the company. They're quitting the person they work for. And it's true. We, we, hear, that, we hear that all the time, and it's, it's, it's scary. Let's switch gears now, Kelly. Yes. Your book is Counter Mentor Leadership. And if you've been listening to this and haven't paused uh, this podcast to buy it, um, feel free to do that now. But COUNTER is actually an acronym, and the way I see you writing it, it's the opposite of Taylor leadership, hence the term counter. But break down counter. What's that acronym mean? Well, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there, there's a multifaceted approach going on here. Jack Welch made uh, sort of famous in business circles the idea of reverse mentoring. And the whole idea was that he told his, his older executive leaders, I want you to find someone younger and I want you to pair up with them and I want you to coach them, but I want you to use them to coach you as well because we need to be more savvy about uh, digital 
applications and social media and community and the things that these kids do very, very well. And we typically do not. And although we, we love the idea of reverse mentoring, it really did not capture the essence of what we're trying to teach in, in the book. And that is something completely counter to what's accepted as normal practice as leaders. But also this idea of uh, the older and the younger working together. And, and as a visual, if you think of a teeter-totter, you know, when, when it's balanced, it's it's really interesting. It means that both people are contributing equally. And we, we, we look at counter-mentor leadership as not just – a, an older leader helping a younger employee achieve their potential, but it's also utilizing that younger uh, leader to help, or long, younger employee rather, to help the leader reach their potential. So there, there's kind of a, a double play going on here. But we looked at what we did, and it started with a, a book that I wrote many years ago, and then extended into the things that Robbie learned and developed as, as his career you know, took off as well. And we realized that there was a very common path that we walked. And we were able to put this into this acronym counter. And we very rapidly came upon the, the word and the idea of counter, you know, the practice being different and so forth. And then we, we recognized that we could fit our management training ideas, our, our leadership methodology into this word. So the word counter is a sort of a seven step methodology that we use in approaching clients and that we unpack in great detail. The first one, not surprisingly, the C is about communication. In all the years that I've been doing this and all the years I've been in, in corporate America, I've never run across an organization that does not readily admit that they have communication issues. <laughs> it's, it's, it's uncanny and it's inevitable. And yet when you ask people, when are you going to solve your communication issues? They look at you like you've lost your mind. Like, you know, this is not an issue you solve. It's just an issue that is. And when they do try to solve it, they try to uh, you know create more emails and more meetings. And that's the standard approach. We need more emails and we need better, you know, more meetings. And both of those are counterintuitively quite wrong and a really bad way to go about it. So we teach some very specific things inside of communication that are, in the words of our clients, game changers. Absolutely change the game of, of leading people effectively and creating a different tone and tenor inside of an organization. The O is uh, the, the whole idea of owning that relationship. You, you, you can't just talk about millennials. You can't talk about developing potential. The leader has to own that relationship. And we get into some very specific methodologies of how you create that relationship with a younger employee and you value it not only for what you do for them, but what they do for you. You, I think, is, is uh, just natural. It's understand the perspectives. And this is not just generational perspectives. In fact, one of the things we always say, Jim, and it's one of the things I would want to leave your listeners with is leadership is not generational. It's relational. Being a great leader is about developing a relationship. You don't do that regardless of the generation, even boomer to boomer or millennial to millennial or across any generations. You can't do that unless you understand the perspectives that they hold on, on life and the workplace and the way they do things. And so we unpack that in, in quite a big deal. N is about negotiating the obstacles. There, there are a number of obstacles that exist to creating good leaders and good leadership relationships. And you need to understand and address those as you, as you go along. T, T is teach the essential skills. And one of the things we tell leaders is, look, you, you, your role is, is to develop people. If you're not developing people, you're not really an effective leader. It's one of the real measuring sticks on how effective you are as a leader and teaching people essential skills, especially teaching them how to think, how to communicate, 
uh, those kinds of things are, are, are really, really critical. Then E and R are about execute and review. Once you teach people how to do things and you're coaching them and so forth, you got to give them the opportunity to get out into the real world and execute. And they're going to make mistakes. And that's natural. In fact, it's it's advisable. Uh, we, we say all the time, we actually want employees to fail. We just want them to fail small. <laughs> we don't want them to sink the battleship. But but failure is is where people actually learn well. So the review process, which we actually set up way back in the C part of the whole construct, uh, is what allows us to grow and coach and, and learn and improve. And uh, that, that that is the fundamental aspect of what we teach leaders and how, how to lead in today's chaotic four-generation workplace. Relational, not generational, is is going to be a, a term I'm gonna I'm gonna have to borrow more than more than once there, Kelly. <laughs> no problem. Can, uh, keep, keeping that in mind, share with us what the 2016 Deloitte Millennial Survey found out about millennials' thirst for their leadership development skills. Well, I, th- this is a very revealing um, research piece that was done by Deloitte. Of course, uh, they're a, a research firm in their own right. And w- one of the things they found out is that um, about two-thirds of employees, uh, millennial employees, this was a millennial study, about two-thirds of millennial employees see themselves gone from their current position in, in less than five years. I mean, they sort of have this label anyway, is that, you know, they're job hoppers and all that kind of thing. But Boomers misinterpret why they're leaving and they misunderstand why they're leaving. We think that they, you know, they just don't get their way and and uh, they, they, you know, they have any patience and they, they want to arrive on Monday, first day on the job at noon in flip flops. And by Friday, you know, they want to be CEO. And, and, and I love saying all those things to my son and it, you know, kind of tweaks him a little bit. But it's actually not true. I mean, they do want to advance quickly and they do want to grow and they do want to develop. But boomer managers grossly underestimate their skills and their motivations. And what this particular study found is that the reason people are leaving, the reason millennials are looking for other opportunities, is they do not feel as though they're being taught how to be effective leaders. They they want to grow and develop as leaders and they're, they're not getting it from the workplace. Um, there, there's a quote from the study that says, pardon me, 71% of those likely to leave in the next two years are unhappy with how their leadership, leadership skills are being developed, fully 17 points higher than among those intending to stay beyond 2020. Uh, what they're saying is, look, we're, we're not satisfied to sit down, shut up and, you know, pay our dues and work our way up the corporate ladder and all that. We want to grow and develop and we want to do it now. And guess what? That's the way they were raised. And my son loves to reinforce all the time. You know, dad, if there's anything wrong with us millennials, uh, we were raised this way. So whose fault is it really? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And it's, uh, I, I hate to admit that he's right. I hope he's not listening, but, but he is. He probably is. And it's one of the conclusions we often draw out in, in our leadership courses that, that, that we facilitate. One more question about the book. Yes. Many times, many times when I'm facilitating a leadership course, there's often, let's say, a, a typical audience, if I dare stereotype, 15, 20 years of experience, often from a large company. People wonder about what their actual influence sphere could be. What, what, do they, what are they really empowered to do? And you've got this construct called the Freedom Box, and it's, it's dynamite. It, it adds more fidelity to what I was using before as a, a notional thing. I think it's a great construct for improved accountability. How can we visualize this freedom box? 
Well, you know, this this is something that I'm I'm not really sure where I first sort of conceived of it. Uh, but I used to draw it up when I was dealing with executive teams or you know, teaching leadership. I, I would just draw simply sort of a rectangle box on a whiteboard. And I would say, listen, what, what we're trying to do with employees is we're trying to increase the scope and the, and the size of their responsibility and capability. And you can only do that by creating boundaries that they know that they can work inside of uh, with, with, with complete freedom. And, you know, I never thought of the word freedom box or any of that kind of thing. But a, a friend of ours, a buddy that we have interviewed on our podcast a couple of ni- times, his name is Jim Keenan. He said, oh, yeah, I call that the freedom box. And I said, OK, I just stole that because that is that is absolutely what I've been trying to say and could not say eloquently. But a freedom box is sort of this um, it, it's almost uh, um something that's counter to, to what we think about. We don't think of a box as providing freedom. We think of a box as in, you know, constraint. And yet the idea is that when you hire someone and they're brand new, their you know, degree of freedom is very, very small because they've not had the experience, the training, and we've not developed them to, to make their own sorts of decisions. So when I would draw this box up, we would draw the four boundaries of the box and include the things like what our expectations of them are, what our performance standards are for them, the cultural values that that we have inside of the organization, the kind of people we are, the way we do things, what drives us as an organization. And that fourth boundary would be the level of authority that people have. And when you define those things very clearly, then you create the boundaries of the box itself. Inside of the box is all the training and development that we provide along with the resources that we give them to be successful. So when you think about it as an employee, if I'm very clear on what your expectations are for me, and I know the the way we do things as a company and the cultural norms and ideals that we have, I know how my performance is measured, what the standards are, and how I can know if I'm successful or not, And then finally, on the fourth boundary, I know exactly what my levels of authority are. If you provide me all the training and resources I need, then that box is going to get bigger and bigger over time. And here's the good news for leaders. When you can know that your people can do their jobs without you looking over their shoulder, it provides that valuable time that you never seem to have to go do other things that are leadership related, like improve your communication, uh, create more training and onboarding skills for people to, to get better in their jobs, you know, creating the, the, the strategy and the planning that will take your, your department or your company to a defined place. The biggest problem that leaders have today, Jim, by far and away, second place I don't think is even close, is they always say the same thing. When, they, when you talk about the things they should be doing as leaders, they always say, I agree with you, but I don't have time for those things. And the reason they don't have time is because their people don't operate with freedom and with their confidence that they are doing the things that we want them to do as leaders. The freedom box allows us to define the perimeter and, and enlarge it as as, pos- as much as possible for the potential of each individual employee. And it's liberating as a leader, extraordinarily liberating, because now I can work on things that have nothing to do with staying up with what each individual employee is doing. You know, hat tip uh, certainly to, to you for this wonderful book, Counter Mentor Leadership, Kelly, and also a hat tip uh, to Jim Keenan, because I guess I'm a partner in crime and 
in uh, stealing that, although I haven't drawn it yet and put it into a book. Tell us, <laughs> uh, looking at looking ahead, looking ahead as we're finishing up here, Kelly. What projects are you working on now? You'd like to share with the audience? Well, there's there's a, a lot of corollaries that come out of the book that we begin to really explore that we want to get into greater detail on. And, you know, part of that is hearkening back to Lieberman's work is how do you, how do you consistently and reliably create leaders who have both a results focus and a people focus. I mean, we, we, we focus a lot on the people side in the book. Uh, in later chapters, we get into the results side, but I think there's a lot of ground still to be covered there as well. The other thing is, is we sort of take for granted inside the book, the whole notion of training and onboarding effectively. And that's, that's really a very bad assumption in my experience in the work that I do and my son as well, one of the glaring weaknesses and deficiencies inside of organizations is their onboarding process and the way they predictably and reliably train their people. And uh, that's something that we're going to pursue with a lot of vigor in the in the future. But there's just a lot of corollaries to come out of the book that we can continue to pursue. And I, and I, and I will say, listen, I so much appreciate you interviewing me uh, for, for the book, but this book would never have existed or be what it is without Robbie's extraordinarily valuable contribution, his insights from the millennial perspective and our banter back and forth, uh, is, is, is a big piece of the book. And he is hugely responsible for making this thing what it is. Well, kudos to both of you, Kelly and, and Robbie. I'm, I'm sure you'll have a chance to listen to this and, and we'll end up getting connected as well. And thank you again, Kelly. This was a very, very engaging joint cast, Counter Mentor Leadership. Thanks again. You bet. Great to be. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the joint cast, a positive review and kind word to your friends and colleagues would be most appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk.